passage we'll be considering this evening comes to us from Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. This is the word of the Lord, and receive it as such. Our Lord speaks, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So for the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. The title for our message this evening is The Key to Patience and Opposition. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, these words of our Lord come to us at the very end of what has sometimes been termed the Olivet Discourse. One of the great collections of Jesus' teachings and sayings in the Gospel of Matthew. His discourse begins in Matthew 24, when the disciples asked their master near the end of his earthly ministry two questions. You can find them in Matthew 24, verse 3. When will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of Christ's coming in the end of the age? And so throughout this discourse, Jesus has answered basically these two questions. But he's also said more. Throughout the discourse, Jesus has revealed what the future of his church will look like as it awaits that end of the age, Christ's return. And what he has said, if you're familiar with the passage, is not very good. 
In no uncertain terms, he says that as the church awaits Christ's coming, as it awaits that end of the age, the church will be persecuted. The enemies of God's people will increase. There will be false prophets and teachers. There will be tribulation. The people of God will be opposed. And they will suffer for their witness. Now this isn't what the disciples wanted to hear. And it's not a message that we particularly enjoy to be reminded of. But it was important for the disciples to hear this. Jesus tells the disciples about the future. And also... He tells them how he expects them to live as they wait. They are to await his return. They are to look out for him. They are to keep their lamps alight. They are to be patient. They are to be fruitful, investing their talents given to them, even as they are bitterly opposed. This is his expectation for his church as it suffers the road of the cross. He spoke these words to his disciples. He speaks them to us now. And I think we can very much relate to these words. We hear these predictions and commands from Jesus. I don't think the word encouraging is necessarily the word we'd use to describe them. But the way he describes the church describes the church very much in our day. These are fear-inducing words, but we have seen them come true. The church in many places, not just in the U.S., in my own home country of Canada, and overseas, In places we just prayed for, in Ukraine and Haiti, the church in Israel and Palestine suffers immensely for their witness for Christ. But even now, in our lives now, we see persecution in its small form. Small form, its root form, its seed form. Mockery, our faith misrepresented to our faces. We see it mocked in the news. We see it mocked with our coworkers, even family members who... Sadly, I've walked away from the covenant. In our passage, the context gives us a heavy burden. Be patient. Suffer as a Christian. Keep your lamp alight. Be patient. This is not encouraging. It's a heavy task. And it's a bad prediction. And Jesus seems to think so because when he ends his discourse, which is our passage, he angles towards comfort. He gives our text a wonderful promise, a key in the midst of opposition. Jesus will return in judgment. And so for the church of God, the waiting, the struggling, the pains and mocking that we even now face internationally and locally in this church can be borne. And we can be patient. We can do exactly what the Lord has commanded us to do if we grasp this truth. And this is our theme. The shepherd king will exalt his flock. The shepherd king will exalt his flock to give the disciples strength for this task, to be patient. He gives them our passage. And so we want to look at them under this theme. The shepherd king will exalt his flock in two parts. First, see the shepherd king's glory. And second, see the shepherd king's judgment. So first, see his glory. So Jesus begins these words at the end of his Olivet Discourse, these words of encouragement by describing himself. Did you notice that? He describes himself with his favorite title, Son of Man. 
And by using these words, Jesus places himself as the fulfillment of ancient prophecy that all pious Jews would have been very familiar with. See, in Daniel 7, a prophet, the prophet Daniel wrote many hundreds of years earlier, describing many visions that he saw while in Babylon, in another place where the people of God were oppressed, in another place where they were persecuted. And in Daniel 7, the prophet Daniel saw a vision. It's revealed in this vision that there are four beasts. These four beasts represent four kings who each will rise in succession. And the fourth of them is the worst. These beasts represent, it's it's revealed over time, that these are the opposition to the people of God. These are the powers that be that will oppose the people of God. The fourth beast, of course, is the worst. Daniel says he made war with the saints and prevailed over them. And while the details of the book of Daniel are difficult, as many of the prophets are, the message is relatively simple. The people of God will be opposed. In that prophecy, when the beast, the fourth beast, is at its absolute worst, God intervenes. In the vision, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days, which is God. And he takes his throne to judge this beast at the height of its power. We're told that the beast is killed, Its body is destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. So the Lord will judge. The Lord will avenge his people. He'll rescue them. But then there's another vision. And this vision is very much like the first. It describes the same event. Now Daniel sees the Son of Man. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We can hear the Lord's prayer in that, can't we? For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. The kingdom Jesus Christ has been preaching all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And so Jesus is the Son of Man. He's Daniel chapter 7, fulfilled. The end-time king, the glorious and mighty ruler who rules over all when God has saved his people. He is David's better son. With Abraham, he's the heir of the world. All nations and languages and people, says Daniel, will bow down to him as their rightful ruler. It's the kingdom of God. Jesus has been preaching all throughout the gospel of Matthew. And it says that Jesus will be glorious. Jesus says this about himself. He says in Matthew 25 that he will take his glorious throne. That he will be surrounded by angels and that he will be openly recognized by all people. The kingdoms the dominions will be taken away from all that opposes the gospel and persecutes believer, the fourth beast, and reclaimed by Jesus. When he comes for you and I, he will be openly recognized and acknowledged. This is the Christ that we serve now. This is the Christ that we're patient for now and witness for now. He's not a weak Christ. He's not a powerless Christ, but one who is mighty to save. 
This is the Christ you deny the flesh for. This is the Christ you strive to please. Not a Christ to be ashamed of. One deserving of trust. But there's an irony in Matthew 25 when Jesus is speaking about himself as the Son of Man. Because the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is quite a glorious figure. But the Jesus we see in Matthew isn't very glorious at all. See, as Jesus is saying this, plans are already being put in place to put the Son of Man to death. The man of Daniel 7. Look just after in Matthew 26, just a few words after our passage. Jesus prophesies that the Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified. The chief priests and the elders of the people already plot together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. This Jesus, soon to die. This Jesus who already in Matthew has been seen to be rejected by all the people. This Jesus, Son of Man. This image of the Son of Man Jesus speaks of looks nothing like the Jesus seen so far in Matthew. Far from all people's nations and languages serving him, acknowledging him, Jesus has been rejected by his own. In fact, if anything, we see Jesus in the Gospels described as how his church is described and how it looks at present. Oppressed, rejected, ridiculed, misunderstood, and mocked. Jesus looks like how his church will look as it awaits his return, as it awaits a glory to be revealed, but not seen at present. In theology, we call this the state of Christ's humiliation. Jesus came the first time without glory and meekness and humility for the salvation of his people. He died. Think of that. The man of Daniel 7, the son of man, he died, mocked, scorned on the cross for the salvation of his people as a son he learned obedience through pain and opposition. He was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. His kingdom, his cause, his religion was mocked. We can think of him having the purple robe put on him and the crown of thorns plated for him and put on his brow. We can think about the placard over his head as he hung on the cross announcing his kingdom to all people in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. We can think of the burial he received. A paltry burial. A small burial. Far beneath a king. Jesus had no glory for our salvation. To pay for our sins. And in this way, he modeled what we are to be like in this walk. The path of the cross. Bearing the cross. Suffering reproach with patience. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, says Isaiah, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He walked as a pilgrim, seeking a better city, a heavenly one, just like the church. This is the task the church is called to, to wait and to watch in the midst of persecution, to be patient as the Lord once did, looking for the exaltation of God, waiting a reward. And Jesus, of course, received that reward. See, that was Jesus' first coming, 
when he accomplished salvation and began to apply it. But now Jesus is speaking of the future. When humiliation is done away with and exaltation is the theme of the day. When he will come again to fully apply salvation where his glory will be seen by all. The Son of Man will return. And before he came with no glory, literally stripped of all his clothes to be hung on a cross to die, then he will be clothed with glory indescribable, no longer alone, no longer cut off from the land of the living. He will be, as our text says, with all the angels. Notice the word all. All the angels who Revelation 4 tell us sing to him holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who is and who was and who is to come, who surround on on his throne of glory where he has the right to judge over all in a wonderful public display, the king of glory who died on the cross will enter into the world to judge the world that mocked him. He will enter again with a sword, with a mighty scepter as we sang in Psalm 46. And his rule, which is invisible now, which we know is true, will be made visible and openly acknowledged by all. Before him will be gathered all the nations and his glory will be admitted by all. The Pharisees, now presently plotting to kill Jesus, will acknowledge it. Nero will acknowledge it. The worst persecutors of the church's history will acknowledge it. All will see the glory of the Christ who came without glory. This is essential that we grab hold of this truth. Here's the bottom line on this. Here's the application. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. There's not a shred of doubt in Jesus' voice as he says this. He speaks when the Son of Man comes. It's certain. The Father will give him his throne. Congregation, Jesus will win. Have you ever thought about that? Nothing that we do now can prevent that. Nothing persecution can do can prevent that. Nothing the unbelief of man can do can prevent the victory of Jesus Christ because the Ancient of Days is the one who gives the throne. He took it from the fourth beast. He gives it to the Son of Man and he reigns forever and ever. Everything we as Christians have lost as we stand for the truth, as we are patients, whether it's friends, influence, money, it's not all in vain. We're not making a bet when we commit our lives to Jesus Christ that if he wins, then I get so and so back. This isn't gambling. This is certain. Christ will win. So practically, that means that we don't have to have a defeatist mindset. Christ will win. The Great Commission, that will succeed. Christ will win. Whether our congregation, whether our denomination will last a hundred years, we might not know, but this we do know. Jesus Christ will win. We don't have to worry. Jesus Christ will win. And when Christ wins, he will give his flock victory, exalting them, judging them, and all the nations before his throne. As we see in our second point, see his judgment. Now we turn our attention again to the court assembled before Christ in our passage on the last day. Our text says all the nations will be gathered before him. And so among these nations, however, the king separates them into two 
categories, placing each one on one of his hands. On the right hand, there are sheep, and on the left hand, there are goats. Now, the image of sheep is used repeatedly in Scripture, and we're very familiar with it. It's used to represent the people of God. In our passage, that's the case, and it's seen especially later on as the works of the sheep are revealed. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So in other words, the sheep have treated Christ well. They've honored him. They've respected him. They saw him when he had no glory, and yet they acknowledged him. But the sheep are surprised to hear this because they've never seen the glorious king in front of them, like how he's describing himself. Yet Jesus will say that they truly did these things for him. He says, truly I say to you, as, long, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. My brothers here, he's speaking of Christians, the other sheep. And so we have a principle. The king identifies with his subject, where the shepherd identifies with his sheep. How someone treats the sheep is taken personally by the shepherd. And so on the other hand of the king, we have the goats. The image of goats doesn't have a common meaning in the Bible, but as we read the passage, it's very clear who these people are. The king tells the people, I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Notice, the goats aren't condemned for what they have done. They're actually condemned by what they haven't done. They haven't blessed the king or submitted to the shepherd. Evidently, these aren't Christians. And again, like the sheep, they're confused. We've never seen a king like this. We've never seen you like this. Surely, of course, if they had seen the king like this, they would have helped. But Jesus says, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And the least of these being the same, the sheep, his brothers, Christians, You and I. In other words, these people aren't just people who never believed in Christ, but people who saw Christians in need. Believers and sisters, believers in the king, his brothers and sisters, and they refused to help them. These are the people Jesus has warned his disciple about all throughout the discourse. They chose to ignore that the sheep were sons and daughters of the king. Instead, they were criminally negligent toward them. The goats, in other words, are the church's persecutors. All that opposes those in league with the fourth beast. The shepherd king is angry with them. The principle is the same. The king identifies with his subjects. The shepherd identifies with his sheep. How someone treats the sheep is taken personally by the shepherd. To the sheep, the king says this, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The king exalts his humble flock. As he has walked the road of patience and persecution himself, his flock has. And as he has been exalted by the Father, he exalts his flock with him. His kingdom, received from the ancient of days, is in their kingdom. His glory that we just heard about 
that's certain will be their glory. Everything we just saw with Jesus' glory becomes ours. Beloved, do you believe this? Everything the Son of Man has is given to us. Jesus' victory is our victory. He walked the same path of the cross as we are. And when he comes for us, who walk the same path, who are patient, who wait for the exaltation of God, he rewards them. This means two things for the sheep for us. First, it means that the sufferings of the sheep will be gone. Remember again how Jesus describes the sheep. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They aren't clothed. They're naked. This isn't just misfortune being described here. These sheep are neglected and abused by the goats. But look at the end of our passage. What do they receive in verse 46? Eternal life. Eternal life. The fullness of salvation. Full life greater than Adam ever had. That is what they have in that day. Their abuse is removed. Their suffering is removed. All their scars are removed, so to say. In a moment, the shepherd king, when he returns, they're exalted. Being infused with the new life. The supernatural life with God. The second thing it means for the sheep has to do with their innocence. Something that's always fascinated me about this passage is just how stark it is with the description of the sheep and the goats. Did you notice that? Obviously, the goats and sheep are completely different animals, but look at their works. Look again at their works. Nothing good is ascribed at all to the goats. Nothing good. The verdict is 100% guilty. Yeah, compare that with the sheep. Nothing bad is ascribed to the sheep. They're, in fact, depicted as being perfect. These are good sheep. These are white sheep. These are pure sheep, without flaw. Don't read this and be discouraged because we don't feel this way now. Christians, if you're a sheep, you're like this in the eyes of God. What do we believe about justification? That all our sins are washed away in Christ. All that remains in God's sight then are the righteous deeds of Christ and what he's done through us. Our good deeds even, these meager efforts we do to be patient, even that is washed in Christ's blood to be holy and pure offerings. And on the last day, God crowns his gifts. The sheep of God are shown to be entirely innocent and their cause is shown to be the very cause of the Son of God. All that they sacrifice, all that they paid to overcome the world is rewarded by the shepherd king. Their whole walk is the very work of God. One thing that we'd be wrong not to touch on though as we close out the message this evening is the role vengeance plays in our passage. And that is one of the difficulties of this passage. Vengeance. Yet Jesus is telling the infant church through the apostles that he will come again in order to judge the persecutors of God's people. He's giving this information not just to have in the back pocket, but to actually be a comfort for the people of God. Put another way, it's given as a blessing to us that our persecutors are punished. Now that's not an easy doctrine to be able to stomach or to deal with. 
And there are many bad ways to understand this, and there are many ways in which we could abuse this. God has declared in Ezekiel 33, he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. The Lord is the Lord of life. He made life. He loves man. But he also declares with equal force that he hates sin, and not just sin, but also sinners. The Lord is a jealous God. As a jealous husband, he punishes those who would abuse his wife. In fact, actually, an entire book of the Old Testament, the book of Obadiah, a very short book, I would encourage you to read it at some point today. Short book, one chapter. The entire point of that book is the Lord coming to Edom, one of the enemies of God's people, and pronouncing judgment over them because they betray the people of God in a time of their need, the goats. This is part of the blessing God has for us, is that we will be vindicated. Now this can be, again, this can be abused. We should not be gleeful about this. As though so-and-so who I don't like is going to hell because they did so-and-so to me. That is not the way we take this. We don't single out names and declare so-and-so that they are reprobate. That is not the Christian way. We don't know that. When we see someone who persecutes us, our response should be, but for the grace of God, so would go I. The way we use this promise is not by using it as an excuse to not evangelize either. This is actually an encouragement to evangelize. Because there are, the the problem, look again at verse 46. Eternal punishment, eternal life. The two are put in contrast. Both are eternal. There are people out there who have abused the people of God. There are heads of state. There are governments. There are entire systems and institutions. And there's individuals, co-workers and friends and family who have done that. That's an encouragement to evangelism. Because they need the gospel. They need it announced to them again. This is what patient people do. They evangelize. They talk to those who would oppose. They talk to those who would mock about the gospel that may save them. This is what Jesus did. Did he not when he was opposed? Jesus from the cross, speaking the words of the gospel, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Speaking the gospel promise to them. We should not take this in the wrong way, that the Lord will punish those who oppress God's people, but in the right way. This is the Lord being a jealous husband for his people. This is a good king who defends his subjects. So in closing, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus has given a lot of bad news for the church, that it will be persecuted, that it will be opposed, and we're very much living in that nowadays. And he's given the command to be patient, but he's given the key to be patient. The Lord will return, and the God of all the earth will do right. He will set the record straight. He will declare the innocency of God's people. He will give to them the glory that is invisible now, but that he will have when he returns with his holy angels, all the angels of heaven. And he will do justice. This is good for us. Our shepherd king will exalt his flock when he returns for you and I. Amen.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father and Almighty God, Lord, we come to you, Lord, with these words from Matthew 25 on our mind. Lord, it is a terrible and dreadful thing that you will judge the wicked, even those who have opposed us, even those who have persecuted us, those who have mocked the gospel, those who have even put to death the saints. Lord, we pray for them. Lord, convert their hearts. Those, Lord, who would prohibit the gospel, who would make it impossible to share the faith, would you make a way? Convert them, O Lord, as you did so long ago with the Apostle Paul when he was still Saul. Lord, show your mercy. But Lord, you have also promised to protect and preserve your church. And so, Lord, we pray. May Christ return soon. May the Son of Man return with his angels, all the holy angels, so that we, the flock of God, may be exalted. As we walk this path of patience, this way of the cross, as our Master once did, it is not easy, Lord, but we know that by your Spirit we may do it. Equip us with this promise. And Lord, may Christ come soon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.